The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Kings 25, verses 1 through 21. It's page 343 in your chair Bibles. In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army. They laid siege to the city and built a siege wall against it all around. The city was under siege until King Zedekiah's eleventh year. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that the common people had no food. Then the city was broken into, and all the warriors fled at night by way of the city gate between the two walls near the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans surrounded the city. As the king made his way along the route to the Arabah, the Chaldean army pursued him and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah's entire army left him and scattered. The Chaldeans seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. Finally, the king of Babylon blinded Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guards, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guards tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, deported the rest of the people who remained in the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the population. But the captain of the guards left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and farmers. Now the Chaldeans broke into pieces the bronze pillars of the Lord's temple, the water carts and the bronze basin which were in the Lord's temple, and carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the priest's service. The captain of the guards took away the fire pans and sprinkling basins, whatever was gold or silver. As for the two pillars, the one basin, and the water carts that Solomon had made for the Lord's temple, the weight of the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. One pillar was 27 feet tall and had a bronze capital on top of it. The capital, encircled by a grating and pomegranates of bronze, stood five feet high. The second pillar was the same with its own grating. The captain of the guards also took away Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest of the second rank, and the three doorkeepers. From the city, he took a court official who had been appointed over the warriors, five trusted royal aides found in the city, the secretary of the commander of the army, who enlisted the people of the land for military duty, and 60 men from the common people who were found within the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. The king of Babylon put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah went into exile from its land. Have you ever thought about the fact that a promise is only as strong or as sturdy as the person or organization that makes that promise? Probably something you don't think about a lot, but like what, what is a promise? I ask it again. Have you, have you ever thought about the fact that a promise is only as sturdy as the person or the organization that makes that promise? So, for instance, um, when a man stands in front of his about-to-be wife, his to-be wife, uh, it's his wedding day, he says something like this, and it's, it sometimes is a little bit different, but the, the point is always the same, but he says, I covenant myself to you, mind, body, and soul, until what? Death do us part. Until death do us part. 
So why the death part? Well, there's a biblical reason behind it. But just in the functional sense, why, why death? I, I think, if you just think about it, it's because man's strength, our strength, um, taps out when we die. It's very simple. I mean, we don't, we don't have the ability to promise anything past, you know, my heart beating. Um, it just, there's no ability to do that. It gets pretty shaky from that point forward. I, I can definitely say I promise beyond, like, we just don't do that because we know. If I was to give you the example, guys, I'm going to back up past the drums and I'm going to jump off the stage, out the back and out the window. I promise you, you would go, you're not going to do that though because you're not strong enough. I, I don't believe you. I don't believe your promise. So we have this sense of if this person can deliver on the promise, then we believe it and we can buy into it or we don't because they don't have the strength to do it, to deliver on this promise. But what happens when someone whose power cannot fail makes a promise? What happens if this person happens to have indestructible life? He will not die. He can't die. You can't keep him dead. And he actually has all the power in the world when he promises he's going to deliver. So uh, in 2 Kings 25, what we just read, you may not have known it, but what, what you just saw or, or we read is really um, kind of mid-story of the Bible and the, the slow and agonizing dismantling before the eyes of the people of God what seems to be all the promises of God. It's just an agonizing, uh, I, I, we, won't, we won't put it back up on the screen, but what happens is um, Babylon comes at Israel, and in verse 4 of that chapter we just read, all the warriors abandon Jerusalem. They just, they're out. They're gone. The city is left defenseless. In verse 5, we read, the king, like, like a coward, he flees the city of God, the city of David. It's, he leaves his post. This is what you don't do. The king is the last. You don't do this. He leaves his post. He gets caught up with. The Babylonians kept him or, or find him, and they slaughter his sons right in front of his face. Well, you guys know your Bible well enough to know the messianic line, the David's line, if that gets snuffed out, we're, we're done. And so all the promises are, are just slowly dismantling before the people's eyes and dissolving. Just as a show of power, they, they blind Zedekiah. They, they poke his eyes out. The temple in verse 9 is destroyed. It's, it's taken down to rubble. The city walls are destroyed. And worst of all, the promise of the land, they're deported. They're taken away from the land. And you can almost hear you know, the people at, later on as they read this text, as we read this text, but even the people as it's happening, they're, they're shaking their fist at heaven and they're, they're yelling at God saying, I thought you said you'd always protect us. You promised. You promised that you'd give us your presence. Your spirit would always dwell in us, but look at the temple. You promised a Savior, a Messiah, but look at these wicked sons. They were wicked anyway, but it's being snuffed out before my very eyes. And so the temple, the blessing, the king and the kingdom, it's all just dissolving before them. And, and you're right, the reader of 2 Kings, 
25, you're right to speculate. The Jews were right to speculate at this time at the point of, of Haggai, which is what we're going to be looking at in a moment, to question, is God strong enough to deliver on his promise? Is he sturdy enough to actually get it done? Because it doesn't look like he is. And so they're sent off for 70 years, and they're brought back to the land. And when you show up with Haggai, he shows up with a prophetic ministry, what we're going to look at in chapter 2, this is the moment where our story doesn't any longer hang on you know, a cliff anymore. This is true of every story, right? Any good story is going to have drama in it. Um, but there's at some point where the protagonist, the hero, is literally just hanging on by a carpet thread. And in Haggai, we see that uh, that hero got off, off the cliff. He show, Babylon um, does not win. Persia is not going to win is what he points forward. But there's an unshakable king, an unshakable kingdom that will not fail. And his promises can't fail and he will take up indestructible life in the New Testament, and he will win the day. That's what happens in Haggai. So turn over to Haggai chapter 2. Um, Haggai chapter 2. If you get to the New Testament in Matthew, you've gone too far. Go back two books. Um, Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai, you're, you're there. Um, we're going to do it a little different than I typically do. I try to read the whole text all at once. But I think it would be better to go frame by frame um, with this one. So the big idea of the chapter is really um, linked very much to chapter 1, but it's this. Uh, The Lord bids us to exchange our sinful priorities for his ever-present and indestructible promises. That's the point. So he, he wants you to exchange your sinful priorities, whatever you walked in here with, and exchange them for his ever-present and indestructible promises. You do know that as a new covenant believer, many of the promises, even in Haggai, are not fully realized for you and I. And so we're pilgrims on the road, just like they were. And it's a wonderful story in, in that sense. So here are the points. The Lord promises his presence and a greater temple. That will be the first one. The second one is the Lord promises blessing And then three, the Lord promises an unshakable king and kingdom. And then we'll come back for a couple final considerations. Um, To acclimate you again to what's happening, in Haggai 1, we saw that the Lord was was happy um, to confront his children when they are set on a path determined by sinful priorities. He thwarts them at every pass, and this shows up economically, um, even in their farming and these sorts of things. They're they're being thwarted at, at every pass, and he says... I'm willing to do this because your priorities are sinful. They're off. And so at the end of the chapter, they turn. It's really an unusual prophetic book in that way because many of the prophets, they live their whole ministry and see little to no fruit. But in chapter 1 of Haggai at the very end, they, lo and behold, they turn from their sins. So the word of the Lord shows up and the people turn. They had been uh, living with sinful priorities not taking care of the house of God, they're taking care of their own house, and then they, they turn, and then we're into chapter 2. So the whole book takes place um, over the course of less than a year, but this whole chapter we're preaching on, um, chapter 2, is really before the temple's actually finished. So they've agreed, hey, we're going to change our priorities, we're going to build the temple for the Lord, but it's not yet finished, Okay. And, and you end the book and it's not yet finished either. That comes some two years later when the temple is finally finished. 
So point one, the Lord promises his presence and a greater temple. The Lord promises his presence and a greater temple. And I take this from verses one through nine of Haggai two. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people who is left among, who is left among you, who saw this house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you, the declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid, for the Lord of armies says this, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Look at verse 3 again. He asks these questions of the people, this remnant. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So he's asking, who was around 70 years ago to see Solomon's temple? And, and uh, what, how does it feel to you? And, and they are crying. We actually read, some of them are crying and some are rejoicing. It seems to be the ones who are crying are the ones who were there to see Solomon's temple. So something about this temple is underwhelming, which is... Interesting, and we need to pocket that back to know and understand what he's doing in the latter part of this section when he goes, to, the glory of this house will be greater than the first one. Um, and, but is that connected to this temple? And we're supposed to ask the question, is that right? Look at verse 4. They're told three different times, be strong. So he, he, he individualizes every group that he addresses in chapter 1, and he goes, be strong. I'm with you. Um, get to work. I'm going to bless it. I'm going to power this work. Verse 5. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. So he, he hearkens these people who are way younger, right, than, than Egypt. But he seems to have this continual relationship with his people and he brings up his old promises. And, and what, how this has come home to me, like as I kept reading verse 5, is, um, you know, meet Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, our Lord. He's a God who keeps promises. And he keeps on reminding them, do you know if I'm going to work with you? You know it because I said so. I said it and I'm going to do it. And I deliver on my promises. And he never breaks promises. And so, they know about what happened in 2 Kings 25. And he has some things to say about Zerubbabel and um, where he's going from here. So he reminds them of his faithfulness. Look at verses 6 through 9. In verse 6, you see this foreshadowing of a, of a not only earthly warfare, but a cosmic warfare as well. So he's foreshadowing what 
Jesus ultimately does on the cross when he throws down uh, the power and the ability of, of Satan. You see that in Colossians 2.15, but he's foreshadowing that. Verses 7 through 8, what's the deal with this silver and gold idea? Um, he, he's going to build the temple, this second temple, and he's going to use the nation's wealth to do it. And this is confirmed in Ezra 6.8. It's done immediately. So the, the wealth of the nations comes in, and they raise this temple off of just the foundations, and they create the temple. This is the temple, ultimately, that Jesus walks into um, hundreds of years later. It's expanded by Herod later on, but the nations are the ones. It's like God takes their money and goes, it's all mine anyway, and he builds his temple. But there's a shift that happens in verse 9, and you need to notice that. Verse 9 isn't looking at the immediate like verse 8 is. Verse 9 is looking forward. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. It's looking forward. There's going to be a greater house that's coming. So there's a second temple, and it's pointing forward even to our day of a better covenant and better promises. Hebrews 8 verse 6 says, Jesus, so this is post-resurrection. There's going to be a lot of flying around the Bible, just just to buckle up. Um, Post-resurrection, this is what the author of Hebrews says of Jesus, second temple, and that he's the greater temple. Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better, what, promises. If you were to get in in an airplane, and you were the pilot, and you just... You took it up as quick as you could, and you went just straight vertical. You would get as far and as high as those implements could take you, and then eventually they would just kind of, they just conk out. They wouldn't work anymore. You need something more powerful than that. You need like a gospel rocket. Um, that was not in the notes. Right. So you, you'd need something better like a rocket. And so that's the old covenant. It can't get to the elevation that it needs to get to. And so he's pointing forward in verse 9 that there's this old covenant and this old temple, and it's all about come and see. You remember the queen of Sheba? She comes and she can't believe the the wisdom of of Solomon. And and, in this chapter, we're told this is the same house, right? It's a second temple, second edition, but it's the same house. It's the same covenant. And it's all about this come and see. But for me and you, it's go and tell. So he, at the end of Matthew 28, he says, look, you're the temple. You take the temple wherever you go. It's all of a sudden mobile and global. It's going out. And so it's a new and better um, covenant, and it's going to explode outward instead of come and see. So the Lord promises in this first section um, that he will empower them for the work, that, and he provides dignity for their work, and he promises that this temple, yes, it will be glorious, but even the, the latter days will be far more glorious, and it will surpass, surpass it in glory. And he gives this incredible foreshadowing of reconciliation and peace. He goes, in this place, there will be peace. Point two, the Lord promises blessing. The Lord promises blessing. And this is verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the priests for a ruling. 
If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asks, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people, and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration, and so is every work of their hands. Even what they offer there is defiled. Now, from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of twenty measures, it only amounted to ten. When one came to the wine press to dip fifty measures from a vat, from a vat it amounted to twenty. I struck you, all the work of your hands, with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day of the, the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced? But from this day on, I will bless you. Uh, you you kind of, just, just to put you at ease, um, you have to almost be like a mathematician to figure out what he's doing in this um, section. Uh, it's not easily um, discerned, and so I want to just summarize two different things that he does and, and, and bring that out, and then you can study it later and try to crack the codes that are in there, um, as I did. But what is he doing? He provides in verses 10 through 14 uh, this two-part analogy from the law. He goes back to the Levitical law, and his point is this. I mean, when you, when you break it all down, um, where does holiness come from is what his question is to them. Where does it come from? And the answer is, not you. It comes from the Lord. And so, because that's true, you have thought that you were God's holy people, even though you were unholy, and all of your religious um, you know, passages, your rites, your, you know, your activities, they're defiled. And I've defiled your work, even, because you are unholy, and I'm doing that because I love you. And so he gets at this point, your, your sinful priorities um, are are showing that you have no loyalty to me. Um, and because of that, I've, I've thwarted you at every pass because I'm what is best for you. It's not having a good house, not having a 401k, so on and so forth. And I'm not going to stand for your face religion or your hypocrisy. And so he brings the, you know, these priests out to, to do this um, you know, project, this thought project of like, how would this work? Well, well, why is that? Oh, it's because of this. You know, that's what's happening. And he says um, uh, three different times, think carefully. Think carefully about how your life has gone and why that might be. Think about the covenant. How have you bailed on the covenant? Have I bailed on the covenant? I haven't bailed on the covenant. And so it's this interchange back and forth. Look at verses 15 through 19. How do you summarize that? He, he turns on a dime a little bit after his little analogy. And he says basically this, from the moment that you came to repentance, what did you see? You saw my kindness. When you turned to me and away from your sin, you turned towards the covenant and towards faithfulness, then kindness came. Blessing came. And so he goes, think about this day. Think about it at this point and what's happened since. You've, you've put out all the grain, all of this stuff, and it's going to be blessed. Because you've turned towards me. 
So what's the point for someone like me or you, uh, you know, a new covenant believer? Because um, this is where you have to kind of turn the dial a little bit. Um, in the Old Testament, what he's promising is, if you'll be faithful to this covenant, then I will keep you in the land. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to protect you. My spirit will dwell with you in the temple. And then in the New Testament, there's a different kind of blessing. Okay? It changes. And just so you know, in the Old Testament, he wasn't promising them like, you know, massive Cadillacs and, and Mercedes Benz and stuff. That's not what he's saying. Um, he's just saying, I will feed you and I'll care for you. And he withdraws that when they're disobedient in the Old Covenant. In the New, what, what changes? God still keeps his word. He still keeps his promises. He still promises to bless. But he's still willing, what's similar, he's still happy um, to strike you in order to save your soul. He'll still do that. He will still use difficulty in your life. Um, but the blessings do kind of change. And we want to articulate that a little bit and think about it for a moment. Have you ever noticed, if you read in um, Matthew chapter 5, which is, so we're entering into the new covenant zone, and Jesus, he, he preaches what's called the Beatitudes. They are completely disconnected from earthly belongings or wealth. And so he goes, this is what it looks like to be blessed in the new covenant. This is what it looks like to follow me, and what will this blessing be like? Well, these are some of them. Persecution is a blessing. Well, that's interesting. I mean, he's changing it big time. Humility is a great blessing. Righteousness is a blessing. Have you ever sat back and thought about the, the security and the safety, not in money or anything like that, but just being in right relationship with people? being in right relationship with God, that, that he's saying, I'm with you. So this new covenant, righteousness, is a blessing. Showing mercies to, mercy to others is a blessing. Purity of heart is a blessing. So you turn from your sin in the old covenant, and he blesses you. You turn from your sin in the new covenant, and he blesses you. But the shift, the greater covenant, the greater blessing is not material in the new. It's not primarily about this world. It's a, it's a foreshadowing and a, fore, uh, a looking forward to what will come. You get more of the Spirit and more of the Lord. We'll return to that. Point three, the Lord promises an unshakable king and kingdom. The Lord promises an unshakable king and kingdom. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So he singles him out. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day... This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration. And make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Look at verse 23. So this, this point, the Lord promises an unshakable king and kingdom. So who's this Zerubbabel character? Um, he shows up a couple times in the Bible, but here's what you need to know about him. Um, he's not really that big of a deal. He's there 
is this incredible placeholder saying, we got off the cliff. In, in 2 Kings 25, everything was in shambles and we're wondering, can, can God deliver on his promises? And Zerubbabel shows up kind of almost like this no-name guy, but he's in the line of David. And so he's there saying, I'm not that big of a deal, but my great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy was a pretty big deal. And, and God gave him a promise, and I'm still here. And then more importantly than him, my great-great-great-great-grandson, he's a, he's a really big deal. You met, you met him? His name's Jesus. That's what Zerubbabel's doing. That's what he's here in this story for. So he has a role, and God uses him um, in bringing about the new temple and building back the city and these sorts of things, but he really just is kind of a finger pointing forward. Let's think about his claim, uh, the claim that, that the Lord gives to, uh, or this promise, I guess, in verse 22 that he gives to Zerubbabel. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders, horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. So, is that true? That, that the Lord has overturned the kingdoms of the nations? Yes. Let's just think about it for a moment. At this point, has he been true to this? Egypt, they're eclipsed. At this point, they're not a player on the, on the world scale. Assyria at this point, really big deal a couple hundred years ago to Israel, but at this point, they're absent from world power. They're, they're, they've been, they're gone. Babylon, bowled over by Persia. Persia, at this point in our day, pounded into dust. No longer world powers, they are not here. Rome, you can go see it. It lies in ruins. Let's think about dictators, because he says, look, I'm going to take down these kingdoms, and you will be the king. In your line, I'm going to make you a signet ring. We'll, sweet, we'll switch to, to dictators. Alexander the Great died with no successor. Genghis Khan died with a crumbling kingdom around him. Napoleon died in obscurity. Hitler died in dishonor. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, king of the Jews, resurrected and reigning. He has conquered Satan, sin, death. If you wonder about if he can deliver on his promises, if he's worthy of your allegiance, wonder no more. All the kingdoms, all the kings have been toppled and he reigns. And he did you one better and destroyed death. That's Jesus. Listen to the author of Hebrews again in, in chapter 12. He says, he, he mentions this passage, or uh, Haggai 2. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. Remember Haggai is just constantly, the Lord says, the Lord says. For if they did not escape when they rejected him, and, and he's referring back to Moses now, the author of Hebrews, who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he's promised yet once more. Here's the quote. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken. That is created things so that what is not shaken might remain. 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably. Get to work. That's what he's saying. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Those who stand in his way will be bowled over. And the finality of that is hell. But even in in this era, in this time, kings and kingdoms will fall. And if the Lord tarries, the U.S. will not be the power that it is. It's just a fact. He will come back when he comes back, and we don't know, but he will still be resurrected. He will still be reigning. And he says, this world is mine. So he's delivered to you, he's delivered to me, an unshakable king, an unshakable kingdom, and it comes in Christ. Let's have a couple final considerations and and we'll wrap up. So, um, if you've been here for long, you know that Jesus is the answer, right? I mean, if you're in question in any Sunday school class, he's the answer. Um, So Jesus is the fulfillment, not surprisingly, of every single promise in Haggai chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Every one of God's promises is, is yes in him. And there's so many promises even in Haggai 2. So we see that Jesus is the promised, more glorious, and superior temple. He says as much in John 2.19. John 2.19 says, Destroy this temple, this is Jesus talking, and I will raise it up in three days. And they, they're kind of like, what are you talking about? You can't do that. And then the disciples qualify it, and they say, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Or, or a new covenant, an unshakable covenant. Paul, how does Paul drag us into the situation? What does he just say over and over and over again? You're in Christ. You're in Christ. You're in him. In Jesus. Just every way he can. You're, all, you're in Jesus. You're, you are the temple. So he is the cornerstone. He's the rock on which the whole thing is built, but you're a living stone. And we're living stones, not not. Old stones like the old covenant, but we're alive. And there are still living stones that are not yet living. And so he says, build my house. Build this temple. I will, um, I will provide the, the workers. I will provide the energy. But you have to obey. Get, get after it because I've promised you that I will build my temple. And we look forward to Revelation 21, 22, where he says, I, this is John. It's the very end of the Bible. You should read it. It's incredible. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. This is the final place of the temple. And, this, and we're not there yet. Jesus, another consideration, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised blessing. So we've already established the new covenant is superior um, to the old in every way. And as a, a picture in the old, tub, uh, old Covenant of the Lord's benevolence, His kindness, He promises these material blessings, health. Even in, in chapter 2 of Haggai, He goes, look, I mean, how did, you, how did your grain start um, working properly? It's because this was part of my covenant with you. I covenanted the land to you, you sinned, I kicked you out, I brought you back to it. That's the Old Covenant. Well, how do we have an unshakable covenant? Again, they're, they're otherworldly. The new covenant is about you looking forward to an unshakable life, a presence with the king, your ability to be sinless and finally worship truly. 
So you think what we did a little while ago, I mean, I was like belting out, and, and David, I mean, he's like complimenting it. That doesn't hold a candle to what we will be doing in the true blessing when we're really standing before the Lord. He promises also, I mean, that's still future. He promises this blessing even in the here and now that he gives us his spirit. So in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, I'm among you. When my spirit will be among you. But in the New Testament, he indwells us. So our power, our ability to overcome sin is um, heightened. It's far greater. And he is the gift. I mean, that's another blessing. He's the gift. His relationship, his friendship, communion with Jesus. And I, if, if Jesus isn't why you came to Christianity then you didn't come to Christianity. Like, that's the blessing, you see. He's the blessing. So you have people in here, all economic scenarios. Jesus is still the blessing. Thirdly, or third consideration, Jesus is the promised, unshakable king and kingdom. Jesus is the promised, unshakable king and kingdom. Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father. We know this through Hebrews and and other places in the New Testament. He is reigning now. And what is he doing with his reign? He's praying for you for your perseverance. He says he's at the Father's right hand. He's praying for you. And then secondly, his, his kingdom is not of this world. He says that right before he's killed. He says, look, you can't take my kingdom from me because it's not of this world. It transcends this world. Pilate doesn't even know what's going on. And so all the way back then, he's talking to you and he's saying, look, I've already set before you an unshakable kingdom. You just, you follow me. Be faithful. Work. Build my temple. Don't, no longer come and see, but go and tell. Use every penny, every you know, ounce of time you've got, everything you've got, you wield it towards you know, building my temple. So, verse 4, what's the message to me and you? What's the imperative as Liberty Baptist Church? It's to work. Work. Work for the Lord is with you. It's not work so you can gain your salvation. It's work because he's with you. He's promising to bless. This is what he's like. He blesses those who walk in his light. And so he's saying, look, I want you to go out and I want you to evangelize and build the temple. I want you to disciple others because I'm going to be with you. I want you to disciple the membership of these people here. I want you to share and I want you to show the gospel because there's living stones that are living and they need to be strengthened and be told about the king and the kingdom and there's stones that are to be living and they're not yet living. And you have the gospel to go share with them. 